So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview special guests. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Last time, I discussed how I worked out a short document of goals and guidelines to help keep me on track as I outline the stories for my novel's second quarter, which uses Fritz Leiber's Fafford and Grey Master stories, a big guy and a little guy pair of thieves often operating in a cosmopolitan city of thieves situation, as my leaping off point. Before I got to outlining those stories, I thought it'd be wise to spend time figuring out what the little guy to my protagonist's big guy would be, as well as the city their adventures would be based in, even though I know I'll continue to figure out details about both when I'm outlining, writing, and editing. Today I'm going to focus on literally making a new best friend, the Grey Mouser to Vo's Fafford, the little guy to her big guy, a co-protagonist with Vo for roughly a quarter of the novel, someone I want you to become invested in so you'll be invested in their friendship, so it'll make you feel something when they bond or fight, win or lose, and eventually part ways. Given the importance of all of that, I knew I would want to try for greater depth, than any of the passing one-story-and-done protagonists whose eyes you see through in the first act. That said, I used a similar process, albeit one that I went a little further on. So I started with some real basics, like how old is this character? What is their approximate ethnicity? I mean, this isn't taking place on Earth, but of course I'm using Earth cultures and peoples as a leaping off point for figuring out, you know, is this person Caucasian or does they have come from a vaguely Mexican culture? You know, what, what's going on here? Followed by some real basics like, you know, hair, eyes, a general build figure or whatever, just so I can see something in my head as I work on all the other stuff. Age was easy. I figured mid-20s. I wrote on the page 26, but, you know, whatever, 24, 25, 26, something like that, because that's where Vo is when she comes to this big crazy city and enters this new period in her life where she has a lot of the adventures that she would have been denied the sort of youthful fun adventures by her early 20s obsession with becoming a capital H hero and struggles to survive in the world outside of the little island where she grew up on. Being roughly the same age does not always mean that you are in sync, but it certainly helps. So yeah, they're going to be the same age. Speaking of in sync, I also wanted them to, like Vo, be an outsider to this big city, to have come to it from far away. For reasons I'll cover in the next episode, I saw this city as being kind of a big coastal place, you know, vaguely West African, kind of a medieval Lagos or a Benin Kingdom situation. At first, I thought New Best Friend might be, you know, fantasy Middle Eastern, because again, this is not taking place on Earth, um, but Earth analogs really, you know, get you through the day, especially in Sword and Sorcery. Uh, then I decided to go further afield to fantasy South Central Asia, thinking they'd, broadly speaking, appear like someone from Bangladesh, India, Sri Lanka, that kind of thing. I went this way because I wanted, again, for Vo and her to be in sync as outsiders, for them to discover the city together, and also for them to be discovering kind of each other, which sounds more <laughs> erotic, uh, as I said out loud, than uh, I'm going for. <laughs> uh, they're just pals. <laughs> but yeah, I, I want them to be learning about each other as much, and so that's why I don't want uh, this character to be from Vo's Island, obviously, but also just any of the sort of vaguely European nations that I have her pass through on her way down to this place. It was this decision about their ethnicity and cultural background that, combined with thoughts I'd had brewing for quite some time about their gender, 
I wish help me figure out the name. So what was I thinking about their gender? Well, as I focused on figuring out the first act of the novel, my mind would sometimes wander over to what was coming after it. And whenever it did, I saw Vo charging around with a female best friend. Uh, just, you know, good old fashioned cis woman. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the fact that I, when I got here, I, I thought, well, you know, I kind of defaulted to that in my mind. And I'm always wary of defaulting anything that feels like that, because it means I'm not really thinking about my decision. It's not necessarily carefully considered. So I thought about it and I was like, well, it could be a fella, of course, um, but that just didn't really grab me. So I thought, okay, well, if it's not a fella, if it's not a cis woman, well, where does that take us? And then I thought, well, what am I writing? I'm writing a sword and sorcery story. I'm writing something rooted in historical adventure tales. And what's a classic trope of historical adventure tales uh, written before a certain year? Well, it's the girl who wants to go on the adventure, wants to slip in with the army or the navy or just on the pirate ship or whatever the heck. And what do they do? They dress up like a boy, cut their hair short, tighten their clothes in certain areas, loosen it in others, and are like, hello, I'm actually Billy. And... Sometimes that can be really fun. Sometimes I can go to kind of dark places. Point is, it's a thing in the history of the genre that I'm writing. So I thought, okay. And then I remembered a character I really like from Andre Norton's novel Witch World. And it became a series and this character continues at least until the second book. I've only read the third, at which point uh, the main cast of the first two books are largely shoved aside for new characters. So I don't know if they keep going or what happens with them. But from what I've read, I really like this one character that character's name is Louise. Don't ask me how to pronounce this. L O Y S E. Louise? Louise? Louise. Let's say Louise of Verlaine. But that's not their name all the way through. You don't need to know the story of this book. The, the nut of it is that there's some shenanigans and Louise is kidnapped and her friends need to get her out of the kingdom to serve their own purposes in this grander narrative. And part of how they do that is disguising Louise as a mercenary with you know, no real allegiance to anybody, a uh, soldier, and they choose the name Bryant. Their pronouns become he, him, not just in dialogue between characters, but in the book as a whole. And in fact, they meet the book's main protagonist as Bryant, and the main protagonist at no point thinks of them as anything else, even when, funny enough, in the sort of long escape uh, that they are undergoing, it makes sense for Bryant to disguise themselves as a comely young woman. And this is their guise until the absolute last bit of this escape, which is involving days of travel, it's quite long. And at that point, when it's like, okay, we're just about to cross the finish line, Bryant, appearing as a beautiful young woman, gives a little cry and pounces upon a bundle of leather and mail, crying out, I want my own shape, and now... Another character basically says, are you sure? I mean, what about, you know? And Bryant, uh, I'll read this a little bit here. Bryant glowered, gathering an armload of male clothing to him. The pouting lips of his girl's face set stubbornly. I go away from here as myself, or I don't go at all, he announced. And this is a, a novel published in 1963. All of the other characters traveling with Bryant, whether they are aware that Bryant was assigned female at birth uh, and was once known as Louise, or if they've only ever known him as Bryant, fully accept this, no discussion, we move on. Now, this series isn't perfect for gender representation. It was, as I say, published in 1963. You can definitely find some nits to pick. But I thought that was really, 
cool. And I like knowing that Bryant is in this kind of lineage of stories that I am tapping into for writing my own novel. I love that feeling of connection, probably why I volunteer at a speculative fiction archive. But anyway, I'm also a big fan of characters who defy, well, people really in life who defy others by saying, you know, I'm not who you tell me I am. I am who I tell you I am. And so this is all swimming around in my head as I'm trying to think about what gender I want to assign to my thief outsider character who will become Bo's best friend on adventures where they will regularly be defying others. And I think, well, this character, you know, they're going to be sort of, uh, I mean, they're a burglar, right? Uh, and what do burglars do? They defy boundaries, they move in and out of places, find new ways to use them that other people have not thought of. And that actually brings you to a whole other book called The Burglar's Guide to the City, which is great, but I'll talk about that later in the next episode probably. So, yeah, this causes me to think this character is sometimes male, sometimes female, depending on how they identify at any given point. And that makes me think, okay, well, maybe that's gender fluid, which is how I understood it at that point. Luckily, I paused at a moment after that and thought, hang on, have I ever actually read the definition of gender fluid or do I just have an idea? <laughs> so I did what any enterprising young person would do. I went to Wikipedia. <laughs> now, I read, I read beyond this point, but all I think is necessary for our discussion here is for me to read the absolute beginning definition from Wikipedia, wiki slash non-binary gender page. Uh, all the way down here, we have gender fluid people often express a desire to remain flexible about their gender identity rather than committing to a single definition. They may fluctuate among different gender expressions over their lifetime or express multiple aspects of various gender markers at the same time. A gender fluid individual may also identify as bigender, trigender, or pangender. And so my ignorant ass was like, bigender? Bye gender, goodbye, goodbye gender, see you later. No, <laughs> I was like, what, bye gender? And so I go up the Wikipedia page and I read the following. Bye gender or dual gender, people have two gender identities and behaviors. Identifying as bi gender is typically understood to mean that one identifies as both male and female or moves between masculine gender expression and feminine gender expression, having two distinct gender identities simultaneously or fluctuating between them. This is different from identifying as gender fluid, as those who identify as gender fluid may not go back and forth between any fixed gender identities and may experience an entire range or spectrum of identities over time. And so on it goes. Given the traditional characters I'm looking back at, such as Bryant, who basically moved from male to female and sometimes both, but usually not something uh, along a spectrum, I'm thinking, okay, bi-gender. That sounds right to me. So... Vo's new best friend is going to be about the same age as Vo, roughly 25, is going to be, ethnically speaking, uh, rooted in South Central Asian cultures, uh, India, Sri Lanka, etc. And they're going to be by gender. Sometimes they're going to feel male, sometimes they're going to feel female, sometimes both. I will definitely have to do some more research to better understand how I want to play with that, but this is where I'm going to be starting off from. I could, of course, make my life a lot easier and lower the amount of work I have to do by making Vo's new best friend a white cis man or woman. And I mean, even a woman, you know, not unfairly, there's still plenty of criticisms of various male authors for doing a piss poor job of writing female characters. And occasionally you get people who are like, well, nobody ever criticizes women for writing male characters poorly. And it's like, 
Well, yeah, because men are by and large socialized to think of themselves, while women are by and large socialized to think of others. So, of course, one gender is more empathetic and better at like seeing the other one than the other way around. I mean, you know, fellas, uh, take it from me, a fellow fella. If it gets on your nerves when you see people complaining about male authors who can't write women, usually citing great little tracts from their pages of stuff like, you know, Belinda looked at herself breastily in the window, uh, which would probably make more sense if it was a mirror. Anyway, let's move on. Um, if that kind of thing gets you mad, like, move on. It's not worth it. Trust me. You're fine. Anyway, it would be easier for me to make it a white cis person for sure. And I do think sometimes uh, when people get really vociferous about who is allowed to write who, which is not a common thing and cancellation isn't a real thing and so on. So don't worry too much about that either, fellas. But yeah, when that happens, it can have this unintended side effect of making white cis people the safe option. No one's going to yell at you for getting a white man wrong. And so you sometimes think, oh, well, I want to make my stories more diverse and I want to experiment with this and that and the other thing. I want to have a good reason to research and get to know more about other cultures and so on and so forth. Uh, and then you're like, oh, I don't want to get yelled at. I don't want, you know, to accidentally maybe hurt someone or make them uncomfortable with my imperfect representation of something that they identify with. And, you know, those are real feelings and I get them by myself. Uh, and all I can say is that the, the point I'm at when I'm recording this when I'm talking to you right now, is I feel that it is not a good idea to veer towards the safe option, not all the time, and that if you are thinking of your own overlapping body of identities as a point on the ground, and anytime you want to write a character who differentiates from you in one any way, shape, or form, you imagine yourself walking further and further away from that point on the ground, and the further you walk, the more effort you will have to make to portray that character. I don't even know if accurately is the word. I guess accurately, but like sympathetically and, you know, as a person, you know, and just kind of get it, get it right, not drag over any unfortunate stereotypes or whatever that are, might be lingering in your subconscious. Fine. Like do the work. I think it's better to, to make an effort to try and have a reality that better represents the one we live in than to lean into a default of white straight people because that way you won't get yelled at. Anyway, that's my little soapbox on that. Let's move on. So how did this character's gender come back into figuring out their name? Well, even though I realized that gender fluid wasn't really quite what I wanted for this character, the word fluid stuck in my mind, especially thinking about a character as a thief, someone who slips in and out of places, sort of goes with the flow, whatever. Uh, and so I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to just look up the word fluid in a variety of languages from the general area I imagine this character being from. And ultimately, I tried a few the one I liked the sound of the best was the Tamil word for fluid, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly as Tiravam. And that's what I'm going to say for the rest of this episode, I guess, Tiravam. Um, but if anybody out there speaks Tamil and can help me out, that'd be great because I could not find a pronunciation guide online. Tiravam, in my imagination, for whatever reasons, I'm not going to actually think too hard about this, has black hair, a pixie cut, maybe uh, large brown eyes, and then, you know, the whole big guy little thing. So I was like, well, I guess they're going to be short, you know, five foot one, let's say, uh, and be somewhat athletic because of the kind of, you know, adventures they get up to. That would make sense. 
And then I figured out basically the whole character and I thought about it and I was like, you know, just because I'm inspired by a big guy little team doesn't mean it actually has to be a big guy little guy situation. So what if this person, I mean, you want them to be, um, I guess I'm always thinking about like character design for animation principles, right? Where you want to have characters who have highly distinct silhouettes from each other. So they're immediately recognizable, even though this is not a visual medium. I want you to imagine them in a way that doesn't just make you think of Vo and another Vo more or less. So I thought, okay, well, what if I make this person tall, as tall as Vo, or maybe even a little taller, which would be about 6'3", and yet they are, you know, they move like they're lanky, they're tall and lanky, kind of like uh, moving around almost like a grasshopper or a, a crane, which means that their build and the way they move and so on is actually quite different from Vo, even if they're comparable in height. And it also plays to, weirdly, my lived experience, especially when I was younger, I don't know why, but I seemed to gravitate towards making fellow friends who were, like myself, tall. Uh, of course, I had friends who were shorter. Some of my best friends are da 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 But <laughs> uh, it was never a conscious decision, but I just remember more than once looking around and being like, huh, every male friend I have hanging out with me right now is at least 5'10". Why is that? <laughs> so there you have it. Last little rumble through here, Tiravam, aged roughly 25, ethnicity roughly, you know, South Central Asian, uh, hair black, pixie cut, eyes large, brown, figure, uh, athletic, uh, slender, tall, uh, lanky. From there, I just wrote down off the dome, colon, and then I wrote as many things as I felt like I knew about this character just from the top of my head without reviewing any notes or anything. Some of these things I felt I knew about Teravam came from my knowing that I wanted them to be in sync with Vo. For example, both of them are possessed of a great curiosity, which is a big part of what drives them into their adventures together. Other times it came from ways I wanted them to be in opposition to each other, like, for example, Teravam being not bloodthirsty, willing to kill in self-defense kind of thing, but not bloodthirsty, which is one of the real roots of the conflict which eventually drives them apart at the end of this part of the novel. Some of it came from themes that I identified in Fritz Leiber's writing, which I really liked and wanted to have in my stories. This is why Teravam cares greatly about friendship and loyalty, as well as honor, integrity, and living the examined life. And some things were just things I had a strong feeling about for reasons I can't really articulate to you like how I wanted this character to love a good liminal space, you know, the spaces between things. That's where everything interesting happens, you know, feels to me like something that they would say. Uh, and I knew I really wanted to be queer AF, as I wrote on the page here. <laughs> Once I had down everything, you know, off the dome, as it were, I felt, okay, now time to formalize things a little more. And I worked through essentially my interpretation of a process I've discussed many times in the outline episodes for the first act stories which is um, from Creating Unforgettable Characters by Linda Seeger, a book that I find quite useful. The first thing that that leads me to consider is the idea of there being a paradox at the heart of Tiravam. So I thought about it and I was like, well, this is a character who loves to travel, uh, who I also had decided had fled a noble upbringing where they would have been very stable, but also stuck to the same region for like the rest of their lives. Someone who's come to a big city for adventure, wants to live by the, their wits and all that good stuff. Everything that suggests constant motion. But deep down inside, perhaps the paradox is that they crave and work toward a new stability, one that they themselves define as opposed to the one defined by their lineage as a noble, uh, you know, wanting things like a home and raising a family. And part of their quote-unquote betrayal of Vo uh, will be the reveal that they have been stashing away a percentage of their, you know, thieving halls when Vo thought they were blowing everything just like she was. Even though this will be a secret pretty much right up to the end of our time with Tiravam, because I want you, well, like a spoiler, you're learning here, but eh, by the time you read the book, whatever, uh, <laughs> um, and others, of course, read it, this will be a secret for most of the time we know Tiravam, but that's okay because I will know it 
and it will help me shape their behavior across the adventures that you get to see them in. In fact, knowing this helped me figure out uh, the final sort of closing image of the very first story, which I'll tell you about when we get to that. From here, I went to Teravam's Emotions. I knew that one thing I really liked from Fritz Leiber's Fafner and Grey Master stories is it was not every story, but across all their tales, that each of them have a sort of a series of interesting and amusing partners that often complicate their lives and motivate their actions. And I liked that, and I thought it would be kind of fun to give Vo and Tiravan like a chain of partners throughout the stories where we get to see them. And I thought, well, what would, you know, with Vo, it's because like she's just kind of having her slutty phase, basically. She, she's sleeping around. Maybe she finds love, maybe she doesn't, but she's just having fun, busting loose after having been so uptight and trying to be a capital H hero, yada yada. Tiravan, perhaps, could instead be one of those people who loves to love, where every relationship is a big deal, and one-night stands, a rare thing for them, are assigned greater significance than they truly merit. And this would be a fun contrast with those behavior as well as also kind of true to the way a lot of people behave in their 20s or later. <laughs> I also want Vo and Tiravem to kind of bring out the best in each other. So I thought about this and thought, well, maybe Tiravem is normally very quick to shoot their mouth off and express frustration, but they find Vo's presence calming. In fact, the more Vo gets wound up, the calmer Tiravam gets, which can wind up Vo further. This, I confess, was lifted from life um, in my one of my earliest romantic relationships. Well, I tend to be a guy, especially when I was in my early 20s, I would tend to be the guy who kind of shoots his mouth off, says what he's thinking, consequences be damned, whatever, and would sometimes if I got very frustrated, I would, I would let the world know. But my, uh, my girlfriend at the time that I'm thinking of was like that only more so. And something about that would just make me get really, really chill to the point that her friends often would be like, yeah, you're the most relaxed guy uh, I've, I've met. And I'm like, no one's ever said that to me before. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, even though this is a platonic relationship we're talking about here, uh, you know, with uh, Vo and Tiravem, it's worth remembering that partners often influence each other's behavior. So, okay, love and frustration, or anti-frustration, calm if you will, uh, when in Vo's presence, these felt like some good things to assign to Tiravam. Let's move on. You don't need to think about literally every emotion, right? We're thinking about things that are defining characteristics. From there, I moved on to Tiravam's attitudes. I felt like, you know, Tiravam's coming from like a stultifying noble, you know, perhaps caste system, right? Because I'm thinking Indian subcontinent here. So they're leaving that, they're rebelling against that. Why? Well, perhaps their attitude is to be very accepting of difference and very anti-classes distinctions and other ways of boxing people in. Meanwhile, like I said, I want Teravam to be really excited about coming to this big city, um, but I don't want them to be naive, I don't think, not the way Vo is. So for all their troubles, which they aren't blind to, Teravam loves cities and is a snob about them being the only place worth living projecting a bit perhaps due to her growing up in, uh, let's say, a remote monocultural setting. She accepts country bumpkins, but doesn't think they're living right. Vo's travels and her coming to settle in my quote-unquote Lankmar, my big city, strike Tiravim as admirable self-improvement. So, okay, that's an attitude that helps finesse the friendship. What's something that can cause friction? Well, perhaps, you know, Tiravam isn't uh, also naive about the rich and powerful, but is fascinated by them in a way which Vo finds frustrating. You know, Tiravam's attitude could be that it isn't worth getting mad about class issues. You're just one person, you know, fleece the buggers and move on. Whereas Vo, who has been made very cynical and bitter about, say, you know, kings uh, in the last story of the first act, uh, Disgrace of Stone, she feels differently, you know, like they're all just a bunch of hypocritical, terrible scum and we should rob them with an inch of their lives and show no mercy if they get in our ways. And this could cause friction between them, perhaps, while they're on the job. 
From here, we move on to Teravem's values. And I want these values to align with those when they meet. So they too value guile, self-sufficiency, style, and frankly, sexual prowess. Not that they're going around in bedrooms and checking out how people are doing, but just, you know, they'll tell stories and, and be amused by stories being told, bragging at the bar, that kind of thing. However, Tiravem's values will shift over their time together with Vo until they're more impressed by long-term planning, restraint, thinking of others, and the ability to display perhaps uh, an almost loving vulnerability as opposed to the kind of tough guy routine that they've both been playing at when they were a little younger. This will be a little arc for me to track along with everything else as I move through their stories together. From here, I moved on to what Linda Seeger refers to as a character's details, but she further goes on to say that details tend to be manifestations of imperfections, and so that's what I'm treating this as. Like, what are the character's imperfections and how might they manifest in little details that you notice about them? Okay, well, I figure that Teravim has had a noble education, and I, in their voice, in my mind, always felt kind of like more highfalutin, more elevated. And I'm thinking, okay, well, then maybe they're intellectually insecure and are prone to showing off their vocabulary. They would know piles of words, though, we'll never recognize. This could also set up fun moments of hubris when someone else who knows their words even better can point out, oh, you just threw out a three-syllable word there, and I don't think you know what it means exactly, or you're not using it properly, that kind of thing. And Furthermore, it would excuse some fun wordplay on my part, writing their dialogue, so sounds good to me. I gave Teravem a few other details, but I'm only going to get into one more. See, if you're not familiar with this already, it's not uncommon for, like, gross quantities of alcohol being consumed to be kind of a fun little thing that happens in the adventures of thievey, urban-type fantasy characters. Certainly, it was present in the stories of Fafner and Grey Mouser. This would also fit very well with the whole late 20s party times that my two characters are having, you know, at this point in their lives. But because I've seen excessive alcohol consumption used for humor, usually not actually that very funny, uh, and a shortcut for characterization, usually pretty thin on the ground characterization, in so much urban fantasy, I was reluctant to make it a thing for Vo and Tiravam until I remembered reading in my various studies of Fritz Leiber and his writing that Fritz Leiber himself was a bit of an alcoholic. And I even found this quote that I really thought was weirdly charming from an essay called Fafford and Me uh, that he wrote all about his creating those characters. The quote goes like this. I truly thought each drink would reveal to me an ultimate secret of the universe. They did, too. But I forgot the secrets. Alcoholism is a disease and it should not be romanticized, but what a romantic quote that is. Well, tragically romantic. And so I like the idea of this character seemingly being just a classic 20s party something person, but actually they're an alcoholic. <laughs> and that that could play into the whole thing of Tiravan wanting to eventually settle down when they're realizing like, oh boy, I need to, I need to slow down or maybe even stop drinking altogether. But before they get there, perhaps Teravem gets a little obsessive about it and is the kind of person who will look around and judge others by how they drink and what they're drinking and all that kind of drinking culture stuff, which was on my mind, honestly, as I was reading a book called The Wet and the Dry by Lawrence Osborne, basically a cultural look at uh, how alcohol uh, is enjoyed and perhaps enjoyed too much in both Eastern and Western contemporary society. Almost finished with what I felt would be the foundation of Teravem, moving on into the actual outlining of the stories and so on, I then went to their backstory. Now, this doesn't mean I wrote a little novel all about every little detail of Teravem from when they were born to when we meet them in the very first story where they appear. 
Not even close. This is actually a relatively short section for me. This mostly involved me looking at things I already knew about them from the stuff I'd already figured out and then kind of working backwards and going, okay, well, where might that have come from? This is where actually I decided that Tiravan would be a noble because I was like, well, if their voice is so well educated, then how were they educated? And if we're looking at kind of a vaguely medieval, you know, late antiquity mishmash, you know, kind of sword and sorcery setting, then that basically means that they were either nobility or clergy, almost certainly, and they're not in the church. So noble and perhaps a lonely landlocked agrarian noble giving them, in many ways, the opposite of Vaux's background, which I liked. And thinking of mirroring Vaux's background, I thought, you know what, I kind of had this urge, especially because of all the theatre um, in Fritz Leiber's Fafnir and Grey Master stories, uh, in terms of disguise and actual theatrical performance in some cases, I was like, you know what, what kind of art could I weave into uh, my new character for my Fafnir and Grey Master quote-unquote section? Why not make Tiravam be like an amateur playwright, someone who wants to write stories using that big vocabulary they want to show off and that education they got as a noble. Great. So that's my approach really to backstories. Just like, what are some things I want to explain that I can then learn more about this character through figuring out those explanations? Essentially using the idea of backstory for my character as a writing prompt, not as a writing assignment. So after thinking of possible backstory reasons for a few other aspects of Tier of M, I only had psychology and religion to think about, and religion I knew I didn't want them to have the same religion as Vo, and that I figured maybe they wouldn't even really think of religion as a big part of their life, uh, which would be mirroring Grey Mouser. So I thought, you know what, I'll leave that on the side and I'll figure out what I have to as I go along in the stories for that. I don't feel the need to figure it out ahead of time. It simply isn't that important to how I see the character. So then, okay, finishing off with Tiravam's psychology, what does that mean to be figuring out their psychology? Well, I have to admit this is a bit of a loosey-goosey bit for me. I mean, you can look at things like their parent situation, what's going on there, you know? Are they both dead like those parents? Is one dead and the other one turned into a tyrant and got a terrible evil stepfather or mother for uh, Tiravam? Who knows? Well, I guess me, I should figure that out. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I just have a note here saying, well, maybe one parent's dead and they're estranged from the other because I really want them to be a sword and sorcery hero, which is to be an outsider, which is to be someone who tends to be not having a big social safety web underneath them. You never learn anything about Conan's family in the original stories. Bafford has a dead father and an estranged mother who he thinks might be responsible for his father's death. Grey Mouser is an orphan, and so on. And from there, I worked with a few prompts from the book, like things like, you know, uh, inner backstory. So something that is like not, you know, why do they have a great education, but something more internal, like why does Tiravam get calm around anger? Maybe it's a survival technique from growing up with an angry, verbally abusive mother who you could only wait out the storm with. Any quote-unquote wrong reaction, any reaction would stoke the fire. And in general, the last thing Tiravan wants to be is their mother, who they're pretty sure killed their father, and they've developed accordingly. Huh. So I guess a little bit of Fafford's background gone here. Uh, Vo thinks Tiravan is just trying to please their mum by starting a family, when that whole thing comes up later. See, the more friends know about each other, the more, of course, they can hurt them in an argument. So I made that little note there, thinking, okay, that'll be good for when they fall out. Then you might have things about the character psychology that are like deeply unconscious, things that they're not aware of. So maybe um, Tiravam's loving to love thing comes from their mum being 
awful and the lacking of love in growing up, and Tiravim has no idea, then rationalizes this idea away when Vo brings it up. Alas, shaping yourself to be the opposite of a hated parent is still letting that parent shape you. Yeah, I like this. I, I do really like the idea of Vo and Teravem having deep conversations about this stuff in between or even during adventures. So that's the kind of thing I mean when I talk about figuring out a character's psychology or just looking at them th through that angle. Figuring out implies that you complete the character and then you run them around like a fully functional robot or whatever. And Teravem is not complete. It's just that at this point, I felt they were complete enough that when I'm outlining the stories, I can say to myself, well, what would they do? <laughs> Why would they do that? What would be driving them? And if I've got that, then cool. And if I haven't got that, well, maybe I need to go back and think a little harder about who they are. And for my purposes, from how I'm seeing them and using them in my stories, they are Vo's new best friend, which is why, as you may have noticed, even right into the psychology bit, I would frequently be saying, well, you know, how could Vo riff off of this in some way or another? But if Teravem were a real person, do you think they would define themselves as the new best friend of somebody? No, they would see themselves as a complete person from their birth to the moment that they're wondering, who am I? Vo and Teravem have an equal partnership, and it's important I remember that when writing them. In their stories, I want to give them roughly equal, you know, point of view, looking over their shoulder, through their thoughts, etc. You know, star time. I want to be a little extra conscious of that old writing trick of putting yourself in the mind of a character who is not the main protagonist of the novel, but will see themselves as the main protagonist in their lives. Then making decisions accordingly, decisions which are informed by all this stuff. I've been figuring out while literally making a new best friend. Before I tie this off, I just want to say a big thank you to the show's newest patron, Richie Stevens. Thank you, Richie, for supporting the show and my writing of this novel. So I'm writing a novel. Features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an mp3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine, just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing, at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on iTunes, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>